0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We have um, 75 verses to go through today, so it's a lot of verses. I'm not sure if I've ever taught that many verses before, uh, and I'm probably pretty confident that you haven't heard a teaching that goes 75, but maybe you have. You know, Pastor Chuck, back in the day, some of those teachings are two hours long. Like woo, you must have young hippies with no families, with nothing better to do. Uh, I don't know how they could. St- two hours—that's a lot. Even with Pastor Chuck, that's uh, that's that's a lot. But I know God gave them grace, and He gives us grace. The introduction here for this chapter is Jesus, as we've been seeing on Sunday mornings, He is getting closer to the end of His public ministry, the end of His earthly life uh, before he's resurrected from the dead. And so what we're looking at here is we're looking at basically his time is at hand. Over and over again as we've been going through the the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, we have seen him say my time has not yet come. And and there were attempts to speed up the process of what he was here for or what people thought he was here for. At one point they wanted to make Him king by force. And that was a, that was a crisis in His public ministry because it wasn't, that wasn't what He came for. He didn't come to take over and sit on the throne of David at that time. He will do that. But, there were, but this wasn't the time. This was the time for Him to minister, to serve, to heal, to do miracles, to basically demonstrate that He's the promised Messiah. In the Old Testament, God beautifully, masterfully, painted this vivid, specific portrait of what the Messiah would look like when He came through the prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit. And He fulfilled that in His life. And Matthew, as we've looked at, He's a Jew speaking to Jews about a Jew, the Messiah. And He has quoted Scripture after Scripture after Scripture demonstrating that He is the Messiah that, that about whom the, whole, the Old Testament prophets spoke flawlessly but yet we've also seen with Matthew that he has more he recorded more teaching than in any other of the four gospels Matthew was a tax collector when he was named Levi that was his background before Jesus called him he was really good at keeping records how many tax IRS agents are not good at keeping records unfortunately they keep records too well or they think they do if you work for the IRS here, God bless you today. You're 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 set apart. You're different. So he knew how to record things. And so there's more of the Lord Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew than any other gospel. And so we've seen this. This last week of his public ministry, where he's confronting the Pharisees, he's using them as object lessons. He's engaged in interactive parables where they are the subject of them, and they're answering questions in the context of those parables. He's trying to reach out to those Pharisees. For one, he didn't—he never gave up on the Pharisees, and that we see in the Book of Acts where they came to know Christ. And in Acts 15, they were—they're were the leaders there. The, the leaders of of the churches there in the Jerusalem area had among them Pharisees. And they had to have their minds renewed related to the law and related to what they would allow Gentiles like us, most of us, to uh, what what we would do or not do related to holiness and sanctification and all these things. So He reached out to them, and he, and but He also warned them because they were guilty. And if they didn't repent, just like all of us, they would meet a Christless eternity. And God didn't want that. And so He's been reaching out to them. He's been exposing them. He's been teaching the disciples how not to be. They're going to be the ones that are fo- that have the focus on them in the book of Acts. And after they're baptized with the Holy Spirit and receive power to be a witness to Jesus, they are going to turn this world upside down by the grace of God. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus is preparing His disciples. Half of the Gospel of John is that those last week And we'll get there when we get to the book of John. Preparing His disciples' for his departure. He's been telling them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. But then I'm going to raise again from the dead three days later. And it was like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. Because they wanted that Messiah to take them out from under the bondage and the yoke of of the Roman Empire. And they thought even on the day of Jesus' ascent... (laughs) They're going, is this the time, Lord, you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking of an earthly rule, the kingdom age. Just a couple weeks ago, we went through Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, where he's talking about those Jews that would be there in the last seven years of man's rule in this world. And it culminated with Jesus' physical second coming to this earth, setting up the thousand-year millennium and having the kingdom age on earth while Satan is bound for a thousand years. Anyone say amen to that? Amen. And i got to come on too. That's great. Added. <laughs> Extra. So we've been looking at that. So now as we look at Matthew 26, He is at the end. His time is at hand. All those times He said, the time has not yet come or the time is not at hand. Now He's saying the time is at hand. God's perfect timing. God wasn't relying upon man's timetable. He was relying on His own timetable. And just like there are more prophecies related to the second coming than there are the first coming, all of those prophecies will come to pass exactly on God's timetable. Yesterday, we lost the Supreme Court justice. And that's going to throw off, if the right guy isn't there, that's going to throw off the Supreme Court and how we interpret the Constitution, the laws that we have, freedoms related to Christianity. There's so many implications with the abortion and all these things. But yet, we can't be worried about those things because God's in control. All of this is going on His timetable. It doesn't mean that we're called to be aloof or disconnected or like, okay, well, I'm not going to be a part of you know, ministering or being busy about the Lord's business in the context of all that. We don't get to just say, I, I, I'm, I'm out. I'm going take my ball and go home. I'm not going to participate in what God's doing in this world. He knows that the light shines the brightest in the darkness. And he's called us the light of the world. And so he, that's, that's a huge privilege. And China, with all the oppression and the illegal to be a Christian there and all those things, churches are illegal, public assembly, they're exponentially growing. There's salvations going on. There's more Christians there than here by far. And they're sending Christian missionaries to us. And that's good. We need it. But the persecution has never, ever caused the church to get worse. It's always caused the church to get better and to grow. And so the, the, that is something that He wants us to keep focused on. So now here He's right in the middle of His time being at hand. According to His timetable, Jesus said, no one takes My life. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. We have to see who's on trial here. We're going to see Jesus on trial. But He's not the one on trial. They're on trial. They're standing before the God of the universe. The one who spoke in the universe came into existence by His Word. And He's going to have them have to give an account someday. They're going to stand before Him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, including those uh, uh, and that are standing before Him at that time. And it's exciting to see. But also we're going to see, you're like, 75 verses, we need to start on verse 1. I understand that. I'm getting there. There's a reason for this. I know it doesn't seem that way at times. But there, but there, He is exactly where He's supposed to be at this time. And it encourages us because our lives are exactly where they're supposed to be as we're led by Him. And He is in control. No matter how out of control things seem, He's the one that's in control of our lives and can bring peace in the midst of the storm. But we're also going to see His suffering. He's going to be suffering. He's going to be suffering. And it shows His humanness. And it shows that He can relate to us as that great high priest that He is. So let's start in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that He said to His disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be li- delivered up to h- be crucified. The end of verse 1, we're told that He said to His disciples, He's pouring into His disciples. And He says, two days, it's, and then the Passover. And then the son, the son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. How many times, just in the Gospel of Matthew, have we seen Him warn them, this is coming, this is coming, I'm going to go to the cross. Don't be stumbled. But yet we're going to see them flee in our passage this morning. We're going to see them flee. But is He still gracious with them? Yes. God's timetable, God's clock is right on time. And they were going to experience this Passover. Some of you are new to the Bible. Passover was a feast that they enjoyed. There was a time when they were in Egypt and they were under Egyptian bondage. They were slaves and so forth for a while. Hundreds of years. And then God raised up Moses to deliver them. And then at one point, he tells, after all these plagues had happened before, He said, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slaughter this lamb. And I want you to have unleavened bread and get all the unleavened bread out of your house because leaven is yeast. And yeast is a symbol in the Scriptures of, of sin. It's symbolic of sin. All of this is pointing towards the Lord Jesus. The Passover today they're looking back to the Passover. But they didn't realize that God instituted the Passover to look forward to the Passover lamb, the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. First Corinthians 5.7 says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so we see that. And then in verse 3 we're told, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. I didn't start my timer here. That was a big mistake. Um, okay, I'll keep track of that. Uh, that's, that's one of the rare times I haven't done that for your sake, trust me. Uh, so they, they plotted, verse 4, to make Jesus to take Jesus by trickery and kill Him. Verse 5, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, they knew that their power was only as strong as the people's. That would accept them as their leaders. And so they were afraid. They were afraid of doing this because they didn't want an uproar with the people because he was popular. Now they're still going to say on that, on that day, on that day where he is crucified, they're going to yell, crucify him. They're going to yell, crucify him. They're going to say, let his blood be on us and our children. They're going to accept full responsibility. And it's not just what they did that put him on that cross. It's our sin that put him on that cross. He died for all sins. Every sin that's been ever, ever been committed. Jesus was not a martyr, as I said. He gave His life. He was not swept away in some uncontrolled thing. Everything was perfectly timed. Everything was according to His plan. Everything had been prophesied. Even them striking Him. Even them plucking out His beard and casting lots for His clothing. J- uh, David said in, in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. They hadn't even invented crucifixion yet when he wrote that. David meant in his mind something completely different, but the Holy Spirit meant something that we know was crucifixion at this time. So all of it was according to uh, God's timetable and His Word and His prophecies that He gave through the prophets. Verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to Him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on His head, and He sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant (laughs) saying, why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So here's a classic disconnect going on as the disciples are disconnected from the heart of God. And we see that in our own lives. So we can't beat up on them too much, but she is expressing, and this is Mary, uh, Lazarus's sister, we're told in the gospel of John. So that's who it is. And she is worshiping in a way that caught them off guard. She wasn't worshiping according to what they thought should be done. They disagreed with the method of her worship. And Jesus, he commends her for it. He commends her for it because it was sacrificial for her. It was likely three days wages of a working man. And, and it could have been sold and given to the poor. That's true. But it was an expression of her heart. And sometimes the way that we individually need to express our hearts and worship to the Lord is different than what other people might expect. And we can get criticized for how we worship the Lord. Our lives are being poured out as believers, as worship to Him. And so she probably takes the most valuable thing that she owns. It probably was for a dowry that's paid to the groom and his family in case anything happens in the marriage, that they the, the woman would get the dowry to help support her. Because if you're not married in that time, it was very hard for you to survive. We don't know. But it was very, very valuable to, to her. But it was more valuable to God. And the disciples, they were so disconnected. They say, why the waste? Why this waste? But that's not wasteful to God when we pour out what He has led us to pour out to Him and our lives are representing worship. You know, some believers can disagree with how we spent our life at times. How we perceive God leading our lives to express worship to Him. Believers can be critical of that. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. They don't understand uh, why God's leading us and can't picture it. They can't understand why we're doing something how we're doing it. But Verse 10 says, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. He's concerned about her heart at this time. They're concerned about lost revenue for the poor. <laughs> and Judas, we're told in John, was the, one of the main catalysts for this complaint. And we're told that he was stealing from the money box. So we, we, this isn't really, at least for Judas, this isn't born out of a sincere desire to help the poor. This is being critical of someone else's worship. You no, know, it could have been. I didn't think of that. Did you think of that? <laughs> Would you pour all that? I mean, that's wow. That's pretty amazing. And and instead of going, you know, what 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 way can I worship that maybe be may be a little unconventional or a little bit not for the sake of doing that, but just seeking the Lord how He wants me to worship. You know, when we come together, and we worship in song here. It's corporate worship. We can't do things that draw attention to ourselves and off the Lord, but we can worship when we're by ourselves, we can do handstands for the Lord if we want. There's there's no limit to how we can worship. Of course, it has to line up with Scripture and all that. We know that. But there's ways to, to worship that other people will not understand. And they say, why this waste? And he says, why do you trouble this woman? And that's what he's thinking when we're worshiping in a way that other people are critical of. Why do you bother this person on how they want to worship? He completely values our expression of Worship. I remember, I was just this week, I was remembering that 25 years ago, around this time, the Lord called me to be a pastor in 1991. I was 21 years old. And that offended me. (laughs) You know, that was like, what are you talking about? Do you realize, like, you know my past? I mean, you have to know my past. You're God. But why would you pick me? I mean, that's like, there's way more qualified people out there. And I still say that to him sincerely I do but you know I remember saying Lord whatever you want to do with my life you do and it wouldn't be for 12 years after that that God would entrust me with people in any capacity he knew what he was doing he knew there was a lot of development a lot of character development a lot of getting rid of or not getting rid of but minimizing or diminishing my being impressed with myself and thinking that I had something to bring to the table instead of just being a servant for him. And he had to develop in me a, a supernatural heart for God's people, and he did, much to my surprise. But my kind of ministry uh, trajectory was not how I expected, nor was it how anyone else expected. I went all over the place in different ways. I did Different churches moved down to different areas to get... Uh, Training and discipleship and all of that, and then I mean, it just there's been so many things that no one could have predicted, and people were shocked, and I I was shocked as well. But I wouldn't trade anything at all for what God's done in my life and through my life. And I know you're you're the same. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you look back and you see His choices, and you see that He knew what He was doing, and your life was spent, has been spent as an expression of worship that's been so meaningful to Him that maybe other people didn't understand. But God knew exactly what He was doing and is doing. Jesus continues in verse 11, For you have the poor with you always, but Me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on My body, she did it for My burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this Gospel is preached in the whole kingdom, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And the fact that we're reading it in Matthew right now is a fulfilled prophecy. Because everywhere the Gospels preach, wherever this, this book and other books, and other Gospels, it's talking about this as a memorial to her. That's how much she touched the Lord's heart with her worship that was unconventional. That was different than maybe other disciples expected. And this is the thing that He reveals that she didn't reveal and the disciples for sure didn't understand. He says at the end of verse 12, she did it for My burial. You know, we see Mary three specific times at the Lord Jesus' feet. Learning. Listening. So often the disciples were not listening. She was listening. I believe she heard Him say, this is going to happen. I mean, for sure, He just had said it, but He had said it multiple times. And I believe she believed it and she grasped it and believed it and this is what she was doing. This wasn't like she unknowingly is doing this for my burial. I believe she really believed this is for His burial. She had listened to him. She knew more than the other disciples. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now this this is prophesied. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, we're told they counted out for me 30 pieces of silver. The amount that was used to betray him was prophesied. Even that was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. This is one of the 30 pieces of silver here that I got in Israel. It's not one of the 30 probably. Okay, But it's, it's the exact coin that they would use here. And I'll show it to you after. It's heavy it's called a shekel of tire. It was only the only coin that was accepted for the temple tax in Jerusalem because how pure it was, how heavy it was. And so that's what the money changers were doing and they were taking in Roman money, exchanging it for these and the half shekel that was a little bit smaller. And and they were ripping people off and misrepresenting God's heart to the Gentiles, the place around which those temp, those money changers were situated. And so this is this could have been in the temple coffers. Right here. And it's neat. It's really powerful to see. It's also the coin that Peter found in, in the fish when Jesus was talking about taxes and all of that. So I'll show you afterwards. It's, it's something that's very valuable to me. It's a reminder to not betray Jesus. It's a reminder that there's no amount of money or anything that this world has to offer that's worth betraying my Lord. And, and so it's, I've always valued, valued that um, coin. Verse 17. Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my heart, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So this is really great. He just invites himself over. I mean, that is this is. If I ever do that to you, there's biblical precedent here. Do, am I not seeing this? I, I think there's. I mean, I want to follow in Jesus' footsteps, right? You know, Jesus. Yeah, he just said, "I will keep the Passover at your house." So uh, I mean, he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I mean, I I kind of like that. But then it's reciprocated, right? You invite yourself over to my house, then I don't know about that because I'm not ready and everything. We always have to get our houses looking like how they don't look like normally so that people can come over and think that we live differently than what we really, live. it's almost like churches sometimes where we come and we look a certain way spiritually that's different than how we really are. And God's always working against that. That doesn't mean I'm going to be any different with preparing my house for guests, but it's, it, it's, it's a good observation. The key word is in verse 17 that really is dear to my heart is the word eat. To <laughs> prepare the word eat the Passover, eat. The Passover that's and this is they would have a memorial supper they would have a memorial supper called the Seder it was an annual celebration still happening to this day and and it was really neat the first thing that you would do is and they do this where they have the kids find all the yeast in the house and they go through and they look and they sometimes they they will prepare a special little thing of yeast and they, they have to find this little ball of yeast and it's a great game and all of that. But but God wanted them to get rid of all the leavened bread because leavened or yeast symbolizes sin. And this is all looking forward to their Messiah. Even today they're doing this Seder. It's all about the Messiah that's already come and they don't even realize it there. It speaks of Him. And also they were told to kill a lamb. And so they would do that and to eat the lamb and so forth. But then, Also at the meal was bitter herbs. You know, I don't know if it was wasabi or if it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, horseradish. I don't know, but it was talking about the bitterness of their experience in Egypt as slaves, the bitterness of slavery, and that we never want to go back. And the youngest boy or the youngest child would say, "What is the purpose?" He would have to say this. What's the purpose of this meal? Why is it different than any other any other meal? And then the father would, would give an explanation. There are so many times in the Old Testament where God told the parents when you're walking along the way, when you're in the middle of doing this, explain to them. When they see a pile of memorial stones, explain to your son, this is what happened. And, and don't let them forget their history because their history um, really happened and lessons can be learned from history. And if, as it's been said, if you don't learn those lessons, you're bound to repeat them. And it was true for them. So, they would, uh, they would eat these bitter herbs and everything, and it would remind them of that. And then later on, they added these four cups of blessing. And there's no evidence of that in the Old Testament that I'm aware of, but they've added it since then. And it was basically like a toast. And they had... Uh, grape juice in there and they would and sometimes maybe wine but usually grape juice because the wine would represent fermentation and yeast and so forth so it was likely grape juice there and they, and they would they would talk about what God told Moses to tell the people in um in Exodus there in chapter 6 I believe it is where he would he would tell them to tell the Israelites, "I will do this, I will do that, I will." There's like four of them, major "I will" and their promises to them. And so they recite that, they read the passages, they go over that and everything. And so, um, oh, Exodus six, Exodus six, they they went, and you can read that verses six through eight. There, it was, "I will bring you out of the burden under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you." With an outstretched arm and with great judgment, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. So they're remembering that with these four cups at the at the the Jewish cedar, Seder, however you say it. I'm a Gentile, I can mispronounce those things. So, um, so that's what's coming that's what's coming. And, and that's important because of the Last Supper, as we'll get into in a little bit here. Verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now I want to stop there because they didn't. You, you you remember those paintings where they're all sitting at the Last Supper and Jesus in the center and all of that? That is an illusion. That those those things did not happen. They didn't sit in chairs like that. They reclined. This is even better, right? You're you're there's a lower table and you're just kicking back on your arm and you're dipping things and you're eating and all of that. And that's how it would be. That's that's the picture. And They're not sitting in chairs. Uh, the the middle age paintings are are not correct. Verse twenty one. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, this is kind of surprising for us. Because conventional wisdom, first of all, would say there would immediately know that it was Judas. Because we picture Judas as this, (laughs) you know, know, like, like this evil, maniacal guy, you know, and he's just, but he, that's the part of the the thing is that it was all inside of him. There's a reason why he was given that money bag. And, and, and he was stealing out of it. It's not as if Jesus didn't know that, but they didn't suspect that Jesus was mishandling funds by letting Judas be a part of that or oversee that. So they weren't that that's the conventional wisdom but what's even more surprising is that these are the same guys that are fighting about who's the greatest. If their pride over just flowing pride coming from their lives a picture of our lives before Christ and a picture of our lives apart from God working in our lives every day. And and so The healthy thing is that they actually suspected themselves. It's a great response. It's a great expression of humility. It's a great expression of not knowing your own heart. Don't you love people when they say, God knows my heart? Like, yeah, he does. You better be, (laughs) not, that isn't a comforting thing. He knows our hearts. He knows how wicked we are. The heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. The scripture says, who can know it? And so that's kind of the picture here. They're, they're basically saying, I don't even know my heart well enough to know if I if I'm going to betray you, Lord. And it's like what David said in Psalm one thirty nine, verse twenty three and twenty four: "Search me, O God, and know my heart; try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." That's a great prayer. We think we know so much about ourselves and about how healthy we are and, and all these things. And we'll, we'll make these vows to God, unfortunately, and say all these things that we'll never, ever, ever, ever do. We're not even thinking of His grace or His power to facilitate those, those expressions of obedience. We're just relying upon ourselves. And Peter's going to make that mistake as we're going to see and learn a great lesson from it. So we have to understand there is nothing we are incapable of apart from the grace of God. There's nothing that we're incapable of doing Don't say, I could never do that. Because given the right circumstances and the right uh, disposition of rebellion and willful disobedience and neglecting our walk and the right perfect setup from the enemy, we could probably do just about anything that we see other people do. Verse 23, He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if He had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying Him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. Now why would he say that? He knew it was Him. I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if he was testing the Lord Jesus somehow. After all the miracles that he is, he has seen, and all of the divine word of knowledges and all these things, he's thinking somehow he may fool him. I and mean, that's 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 incredibly deceptive on his self-deception going on there on his part. And he said, "You have said it." Other gospels were told it, and he left soon after that. So now he's we're going to see him change this this seder, this Passover meal. He's going to change it forever because he's going to introduce something that's new namely the new covenant and so he's going to change this meal it, it's going to be a, this new this new thing he's going to do this new communion thing that he's going to do holy communion not communion thing it's a little bit not less not really reverent to say that. but this holy communion he's going to change forever into something um Great for us. Looking back, and we remember. So they were looking back with Passover. But they didn't know that God was looking forward through that Passover to the reality of everything that God was pointing to, their Messiah, and that He would change this whole covenant from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And now we would be looking back in memorial for what what He did for us because He's at the center of of everything. So He says in verse 26, and as they were eating... Jesus took bread, blessed it and blessed and broke it and gave it gave it to the disciples and said take eat take eat this is my body. So th- he's pausing here and he says this is my body this bread that's broken this unleavened bread is broken. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of, of sins so he broke it first of all the Lord Jesus's body was would be broken it was unleavened it was sinless Jesus was born sinless he was born with a perfect human nature and he was the God man he was all God all man all the same time no fallen nature although he could relate to us being tempted in all points just as we are yet without sin so he was perfect and then the lamb in the Passover, was a male lamb. Jesus was male. It was without spot. It had to have no defects. Jesus was perfect. He's the only one that could say, I'm perfect. And He could say it all the time. He said at one point, who convicts me of sin? And there was silence then, and there's silence today. Jesus was and is sinless. And then they had to live, in the Passover, they had to live with the lamb for a few days. And they, I'm sure the kids got attached to it and the whole thing. And then it was slaughtered. And Jesus was with us for a short period of time as the Passover lamb. And, but he was sacrificed for, for us. And then they were to dip some of the blood from the lamb with, in, a, in a bowl and so forth. And they would put it on the top beam and the wood and the posts of the door. And that created a symbol of a cross that they had no idea what they were doing. And when the angel of death was coming to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, if he saw the blood, then he would pass over their house and not kill the firstborn. That's where the word Passover comes. So he is our Passover. And when God the Father sees the blood applied to us, when we've accepted Jesus Christ, we've asked for His forgiveness, we're trusting alone in what He did for us on the cross. Not any religious rituals, not any works, nothing. Nothing completely trusting in what He did for us on the cross, God sees that blood and He passes over in the sense that He doesn't charge our sins against us anymore. And now when He sees us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That perfect positional standing. Lastly, related to that Passover meal, when they were eating it, they're supposed to be fully dressed, ready to go. And they had to go at a moment's notice. And that's exactly what happens with us. We are... Always ready to go, preach the gospel. Always ready to leave this world to be with Him. We're always called to be ready to go at any moment. Now he's going to get into this this covenant here, uh, and we're going to look at it a little closer in a minute. And there's a new covenant, and there and it was prophesied about. I want to read to you from Jeremiah chapter thirty-one, verses thirty-one through thirty-four. It says, "Behold, the days are coming," says the Lord, "when I will make a new covenant." with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? They broke their vows, but he stayed faithful. Verse 33 says, but this this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This new covenant that he speaks of. And covenant means to cut. And they would cut their hands and shake on it. They would cut animals in half. And I mean, there's there's so many (laughs) things in the Old Testament related to covenant. And it's a contract. That's the best way for us to understand. It's a contract. And so we're under contract related to our faith in him. He's made a commitment, a covenant with us. And there's there's the Adamic covenant. There's the Noah covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's I mean, there are so many different covenants. You can study it in a theology class. It's beautiful to see. But this covenant is in His blood because you don't get an inheritance until someone dies. And he, he died for us. But the difference is related to communion is that we're not remembering someone who is dead in memorial. We're remembering someone that's alive who died in our place so that we can have a relationship with Him right now. And, and He lives inside of us. So we're remembering, we're looking back at the cross with the Savior. That's one of the things that we don't think about sometimes with communion when we receive communion and we commune with Him that way is that we're remembering His sacrifice with Him as if He's sitting right next to us and we're remembering it and we're thanking Him and all of that. It's it's a fellowship with Him. It's a special, special moment that we have with him when we whenever we do it and he doesn't say how often he just says when you do it do it in remembrance of me verse 29 but i say to you i will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olive so he's we're going to have that fellowship when they enjoyed a meal together they were. They believed that they would be coming one in a way because when they one person takes food and the other person takes the same food, they're both digesting it. They're, there's like a mystical union and all of that. That was very common in their day and even some parts of the world today. That's why they wouldn't eat with Gentiles because they didn't want to come, become one with the Gentile. So he's saying, I'm going to be able to enjoy this with you someday in my Father's kingdom, but not now. And I will not be able to do it until that time. And then we're told that they, sang, they sung a hymn <clears throat> And they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's the only time that we see Jesus singing. Verse thirty-one. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Who strikes the shepherd? That's right, God strikes the shepherd. Man is this man isn't driving this thing. God is driving this thing. Verse thirty-two. But after I have been raised. I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so he said, And so said all the disciples. We missed that, the end of verse 35. All, this, all the disciples said this. This wasn't just Peter. He initiated it, but they're like, "Hey, yeah, that's hey, yeah, I, I, I'm the same way. I'm with Peter," and they're all joining. in. Yeah, we're, we would die for you. We're not gonna, we, you know. And then they, they, they scatter so fast. But I love Peter. I can't wait to give him a hug. I relate to him in so many ways, and I know you do as well. He said, "I will never be made to stumble." That word "never" it's really, it speaks of self-dependence and pride. It speaks of someone that trusts in his own resources instead of trusting in God's resources. And what God was calling him to is faithfulness in the midst of incredible persecution and difficulty. And that goes beyond the scope of our resources to do that apart from God's grace. See, Peter didn't understand. I believe he meant this. I believe he meant it. He wasn't just talking stuff. I believe he meant it. But he just didn't know that he couldn't do it. It would require so much more than he had in him To accomplish. And what God was going to do is adjust what he was trusting in. Was he going to trust in himself? Was God looking for vows from him? And I tell you this, I've told you this so many times, I'm going to tell you again, I will not do this. And, And you're looking at yourself as the source of what you're not going to do or what you're going to do. And God says, You need to have me be the source. And then you'll be fine. All I want to do is bear fruit through your life. Your job is not to bear fruit, your job is to abide in me. And let me bear fruit through your life. And we make it so hard on ourselves because we just want to prove to God that we can do it. He doesn't call us to prove to Him. He calls us to rely upon Him. He doesn't call us to prove that we're something. He, he, he wants us to admit that we're nothing. And then He can fill us, overflow us, and then live His life through our lives. If you see somebody painting on the beach and you're seeing this incredible portrait and you're just saying, if I wish, I just wish I could paint like him. I wish I could just jump inside that person's body and I could just paint just like them or have that person jump inside of me rather and I could paint just like them. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to come inside of us, overflowing our lives. And then he wants to live his life through us. So it doesn't require us to be super saints or super incredible, just in ourselves, it rely, it calls us, or it requires rather, us to yield to Him. Don't be strong in a moment of difficulty. Be dependent. Depend upon the Lord. Peter was trusting in Himself. He wasn't trusting in the Lord. And that will change. Because when He repents and comes back to the Lord and all this, and He's baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're not going to see much carnality after that. And we're going to see Him preach the gospel and 3,000 people got saved, where God is saying, now I can use this man. Because He knows that it's me, not Him. Which means that He'll give me the glory and not Himself when I do a work through Him. I love Him. He became a broken man. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And He took with Him Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You know, I think this failure on the disciples' part, these three here, related to being awake. Can you imagine afterwards, later on down the road, how much they remembered those words? I'm exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Can any of us say that? To the point of death, I'm so sorrowful my heart's going to stop. None of us can say that. He was being transparent there. He was admitting that He needed them in the sense that He wanted them to be with Him and to help pray for Him and all these things. He still was human. Not just God, He's human too. And they didn't do it. They fell asleep. And, and, and it just shows part of what He suffered. Here He is suffering. Gethsemane means all of Press. And he was getting pressed. We something beyond anything that we could ever comprehend, he was getting pressed with this knowing that it's going to happen, knowing what's going to hit him, what he's going to face. And we still don't know everything that he went through and what he experienced. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So he's saying "If there's another way. And the fact that there was silence or that the father told him, "No, there's no other way," and it's not recorded. Shows that Jesus is the only way to God. If there was another way, the father would have provided it for the son, because he loved his son. But but he but there was no other way, and he came, verse 30, 43, and he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. A little horizontal prayer, there. You ever had that? You're just dreaming in the spirit, you know. Waking up, snoring, trying to incorporate the snore into the prayer, you know, and God knows it all. He's, he's so gracious with us. He knows that we're doing our best and all of that. And He's just so loving and gracious. But their eyes were heavy. That's a good way to say it. So He left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then He came to His disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There he says in the middle of verse 45 the hour is at hand. I've been saying the hour is not at hand, but now it's at hand. Jesus won the battle as a human, as a perfect human, in prayer. And He told Peter and the rest of the, the other two that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's honest with us. He tells us your flesh is weak. His flesh wasn't weak, but our flesh is weak. And he, But the answer came in prayer. That's where the battle is won, is in prayer. And if it's good enough for the Lord Jesus, friends, beloved, it's good enough for us. Jesus rose every day and, and, and prayed. And, and He communed with His Father. And if He needed to do that, how much more do we need to do that? It's a huge exhortation for us. Verse 47, And while He was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the temple had a temple guard. These aren't the Romans right now. This is a temple guard, a special temple guard that they had that the Jews were, oversaw. Now, his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, "Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him!" Immediate and, and, and kissing greeting was very common, so it wasn't a weird thing for him to come up and kiss. And and it was dark, and so forth, and and so they needed a cue of which is the guy. Uh, and it's hard to believe that that would be possible, but they. This is why Judas did this. Verse forty-nine. Immediately he went up to Jesus. And said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now I don't have time to get into it, but this word kissed here communicates that Judas overdid it, like over-dramatic. And, and, and it wasn't a sincere kiss, first of all. And we're told in other gospels that, you know, this is how you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. And, and it's just, this is, remember, Jesus loved Judas. Don't don't under don't underestimate or not think about that this would hurt Jesus. Even though He knew in advance and all of that, He still loved Judas. Verse 50, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and, and took Him. Who has been betrayed before here? I've been betrayed. Jesus was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. You could say that that's Depression. Jesus was depressed. He wanted His disciples there to pray with Him. Here, Jesus was betrayed. He was also not received by His own people that He loved as their Messiah. He knows what it's like to go through life like we go through life. And He gives us the capacity to respond appropriately, but He knows the hurt and the pain. He doesn't minimize it. It's encouraging to know that our High Priest, our Messiah, can relate to us, not just because He's God and He knows everything, but that He walked on this earth and He went and experienced the things that we experience. If you've been betrayed today and you're healing from that, Jesus knows all about that. Jesus cares about you. He cares about what's happened to you and He wants to heal you if you've been betrayed. And Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out His hand and drew His sword. We wonder who that is. Peter. And struck the servant of the high priest. We know from other gospels his name was Malchus, and cut off his ear. Fishermen wielding swords equals not good things. <laughs> I know he wasn't aiming for his ear. How could you even do that? So he's trying to chop lop his head off, and he cuts off an ear. Okay, he has the wrong thing in his hand. He needs to have a fishing net in his hand, but he has a sword in his hand. And so that points back to Peter, meaning what he said. But he's saying, "I will die with you, but I'm going to fight all the way till the end before I die with you. I'm going to take every guy out that I possibly can." That's not exactly what Jesus had in mind there. Jesus didn't need Peter's protection. He didn't need a posse. He didn't need a you know a, you know these these bodyguards. He didn't need any of that. He's God. God doesn't need a, a security detail. Guys, speaking into their sleeves and having earpieces and having sunglasses on, you can't see their eye. He doesn't need any of that stuff. Verse 53. And this is the real reason. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to the Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is 6,000. That's 72,000 angels. We know that from scripture one angel can just slay thousands. He could have prayed to his father. And and but he chose not to do it. Again, he's not a victim here. Things aren't out of control and he's just like swept away in this he's going through every bit of it. The reason why Jesus died on that cross for you and for me is because of his love. Not any other reason, it's because of his love. Those nails didn't hold him on that cross. His love held him on those cross. He was that cross. He was holding those nails together by the word of His power. He was holding the molecular structure of the cross and the nails and the thorns and the people striking His face and the spit and all that. He was holding all that together at the same time. He did not do what He did because of anything that sinful man had planned. It was supremely because He was slain before the foundation of the world. Verse 54, how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, you have come out as against a robber with, with swords and clubs to take me. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. More betrayal. More, I mean... He loved them. And they, they, they were more concerned about their own safety than they were following Jesus at that moment. And we would probably do the same thing. So it fulfilled Scripture. And it showed just how they were and what they were and, and how they had, what capacity they had before being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're not saved yet. They've had their sins forgiven but they the, they're not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That won't happen until John chapter 20 after He raises from the dead. That's when they're, the, the disciples are born again. Then they wouldn't be baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit until Acts chapter 2. Verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led Him away again to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. This was an illegal assembly. They were not allowed to have these court proceedings at night. And they did. It was illegal. Verse 58, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, the the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony. Again, the law of Moses required two or three witnesses, real witnesses, but they didn't have any real witnesses to testify against him, so they sought false testimony. Again, that was illegal against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. It's going to repeat that too, right? Watch right here. Even though, even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two, so they're finding, I got to have two bodies here. They're going to say something like testimony or we're not going to have anybody that's testifying against him. Two false witnesses come, come forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And we're told in John chapter 2, verses 19-21 through 21, that he was talking about his body when he said that. So it was false. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. That fulfilled Isaiah the prophet. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he was silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Hey, guess what? He is the living God. Okay? Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who's on trial? The high priest is on trial. He's standing before God himself trying to accuse him. It's a perfect picture of peace. Jesus is in the midst of this, 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 this storm that's swirling around him. It's not out of control, though. He's not out of control. He has perfect peace. I don't believe he yelled. I don't believe he was disrespectful. I just think that he spoke what he spoke to them. The truth is piercing regardless of how we communicate it. It doesn't make it more piercing when we scream it or yell it. The truth of it is all in the reality of what it represents and the impact thereof. Then the high priest tore his clothes. That's what they would do. They would rip their clothes Saying he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy, and you know what? He would have been right if Jesus wasn't the Messiah. The problem for them is that he was the Messiah, so it wasn't blasphemy. God speaking the truth about Himself is not against His own law. It's kind of ridiculous to to, to, to look at what they're they're doing. Verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving death. Then they spat in his face and beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? He's holding together the atoms that consist of their fists. He's taking that. Remember, the father wouldn't allow any of this unless it was necessary. You know that the Father would not let His Son go through anything that was beyond what was supposed to happen. But the fact that it did happen shows that it was necessary and part of His suffering for us and what was required to take the, the wrath that we deserve. Verse 69, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant came, a girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. Didn't Jesus already say, let your yes be yes and your no be no? And he said, I do not know that the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are also one of them for your speech betrays you. Galileans had different accents. It's like someone from the South. We know they're from the South when they talk. So it would be like someone saying, hey, y'all, I'm from I'm from New York City. You'd go, no, you're not. You're from Georgia. You're from the South. I can tell by your speech. That's exactly what he's saying to Peter. Then Peter has to up the ante to prove that he's not one of him. So what's he do? Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man, and I'm glad... The Scriptures don't include the cursing and the swearing. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Yes, he wept bitterly. He was hurt. He was devastated. Jesus had already said, we'll learn this from another Gospel Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have, overcome, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. Jesus answered that prayer. That prayer was answered in Peter. Yes, he wept bitterly, but he repented. And we're going to see Judas throw the coins back in the temple and he's going to say, I betrayed innocent blood and all of that. But those weren't. Those weren't expressions of repentance. That's sorry. That's that's being sorry that you got caught, and you saw the fruit of that by him killing himself and committing suicide. But this is the lowest point in Peter's life. And failure. This failure to denying the Lord was, I believe, branded so deep in his heart. So deep in his heart after that. And so the fruit of that repentance lasted the rest of Peter's life. Jesus used this failure to rid Peter of his systematic self-dependence and pride. Not that he'd ever be, and I think he'd be sinless after that. In Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was being hypocritical. So that's after the, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's after all those things. So Jesus would not, I mean, Peter would not be a perfect disciple none of us are but he would work in peter's way in in life to to make a way for him to see that you have to depend upon me you have to be god dependent not self-dependent if you're going to be used by me if you're going to be an influence for good in this world if you're going to make a difference for me for eternity you have to be dependent upon me and not yourself it was a great day of breaking and pruning for peter that that brought a lot of fruit and so God was trying to switch Peter's faith to putting his, not having his faith upon himself, but upon God. And that's what he says for us as well. And that's what he wants for our lives. Let's let's pray. Father, we just we have so many things in our hearts, Lord, related to what you did for us. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you paid this price we could never have a dream that you would have done this we know that man could have never made this up to think that you would come in our place and take this punishment and this mistreatment to the extent that you did for us so that we could receive eternal life as a gift that we receive in a moment in time